with you all. And uh, we're in the book of Revelation, chapter number 2. And this evening, we look at the church at Pergamos. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Revelation, chapter number 2. Get situated here. Better get my glasses on or I won't even be in the right book. If you have your little study guide, that handout I gave you, I would encourage you to use that as an index to our study here in the second and third chapter as we look at the seven churches. And you notice we're now looking at the third church, the church of Pergamos. And uh, Matthew Gospel, chapter 13, verses 31 through 32, gives us the uh, parable of the mustard seed. And you'll see from tonight's lesson how this parable uh, very well applies itself to this time in church history. This is what we call the compromising church. And... Uh, the uh, meaning of the name <clears throat> is thoroughly married. I told you last week, this week, the devil's going to join the church. And uh, that's what happens. The time period, approximate dates, are 313 A.D. to 600 A.D. And the characteristics of this church, you'll find, will be a worldly alliance a worldly alliance. The church will get aligned and partnered up with the world. As great external growth as it is in the mustard seed. The mustard seed, of course, uh, the, the, the plant, the mustard seed plant is a shrub. It was never intended to be a tree. And it was... Here, a hybrid where the birds actually lodged in its top branches. Birds oftentimes in scripture are representative of satanic spirits and uh, Satan's power. But now, the assembly, we'll look first at the assembly, the church itself, the characteristics. In this city of Pergamos, uh, only second to the city of Alexandria in Egypt as far as a library. They had a library here, they say, that was 200,000 volumes. Now that's many, many years before the printing press. And you can't imagine the wealth that would be represented in that type of a library. The only other place in the world that ever had a library like that was in Egypt in the city of Alexandria. It's located in the northwest section of Asia Minor, and this is the area uh, which Paul would have passed through as he sailed uh, 
uh, over into Macedonia, answering the Macedonian call at the port of Troas. He left. You can read about that in Acts chapter 16. So it's a uh, very prosperous city. It's a very uh, religious uh, city. And uh, not like Corinth, uh, or, or Ephesus rather, and, and um, Smyrna, where they had seaports and they were uh, very um, busy in commercial trade. Uh, this city did not have it. It was an inter, uh, inner city, inside, uh, away from the seas. And so it didn't have a, a commerce. It was known for religion. Can you imagine that? Religion. Uh, there were temples arrested, uh, erected here to many of the gods. It was interesting, as I studied years ago, I found out that one of the gods, they had, of course, the god of Zeus, the god of Aphrodite, and, and just many, many gods. But they had one, uh, Asculapus. Uh, that was the god of medicine. And the, and the uh, figure that represented this god was a serpent. You ever notice on your medical staff insignia that serpent? You wonder where that came from? Perhaps right here, because they actually had a religion uh, centered around healing and, war, and, uh, and health, and it was a, a medical cult. Actually, they say one of the practices was to lay down on a surface and allow serpents to crawl over you and inject you with their healing venom. I don't know where they ever thought that was going to do any good, but uh, no, none of those heathen religions made any sense anyhow when you look into it. Uh, this is a, sea, a city It tells us in verse 13, if you'll notice there, let's just read verse 12 and 13. And to the angel of the church at Pergamos write, These things saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edge, edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. The word for seat there could be crown. It could be translated crown, and perhaps some of your study Bibles tell you that on, in the margin. Uh, this, this, imagine that. Here we find the devil's uh, throne, you might say, is in this city of Pergamos. They claim that it was uh, ancient scholars tell us that uh, b before, of course, it was in Babylon but it had been moved to this city. And this city was a place where they began the uh, worshiping of the emperor and uh, had a statue, of course, to him as well. Uh, but uh, it's a very wicked place. Uh, Satan's throne uh, is here. Now, don't think for a moment, and many people do, that the devil's throne is in hell. The devil's throne is not in hell, folks. The Bible tells us that he is the prince and power of the air. 
when he tempted Christ, he uh, was in the office that he holds as the prince in the power of the air. And he offered him those kingdoms and so forth, and he had the right to offer it. They were under his kingdom. (laughs) Christ did not dispute his right of doing it. He just realized that that was a false motive. Like many of the things the devil does is false. And um, But he established his headquarters here and uh, the people uh, worshipped the devil, you might say. And and by the way, today, he, he still is the prince of the power of the air. He actually, we know from Scripture, has access to the third heaven, to the abode of God. Now, he doesn't have authority there. He's there as the accuser of the brethren. He's uh, making his accusations as he did against Job and as he does against we who are saved, uh, bringing up our failures and so forth. But he has no uh, power there. He's there as an accuser. We're going to read in chapter 12 where one day he's going to be cast out of heaven. And he'll no longer have access to heaven. Um, this is an ideal place for Satan to have his headquarters because when you study uh, world religions and, and, and the heathenism and that, <clears throat> you notice that the devil makes his greatest inroads uh, in religion. And uh, he uses that very effectively. We're going to see that here and this lesson clearly tonight, uh, it's very significant that his headquarters is here. And Christ says, I know where thou dwellest. That's a comfort to know that he knows today that we live in a world that is wicked. A world that is controlled by Satan. And that he knows where we're at. He, he understands what we're faced with. Uh, today, society in which we live is changing so terribly fast to the bad side that uh, it's just amazing to see uh, how things are happening in our day. I mean, uh, the Bible says as, as it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, now you look at what's going on today. With homosexuality almost as bad as it was in Sodom and Gomorrah already. And it will get that way. Leaven, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And, and when that wickedness gets exposed and accepted, it spreads. I heard on the news this week that many of the high schools and some of the colleges, they named the college, that one-third of the students are claiming to be homosexual. Brown University. Brown University, yeah. It was, that's the one that I heard, I think, on the news. But uh, what, what a shame. And... and uh, in my day, and then some of your day as well, because some of you are as old or near as old as I am, 
uh, it was against the law to be homosexual. And uh, now today, you're, you're threatened with legal action if you um, say anything against them. Uh, but God's not ignorant of the fact that we live in a very religious world, but a world that knows not Christ. Uh, now, this world that we live in, of course, uh, we're told that he, he wants us here in the world, but he doesn't want us of the world. Uh, there's a big difference uh, in that. In 1 John 2, 15 through 17, we we see that uh, very clearly that we're not to love the world neither the things that are in the world. Uh, when you love the world, you don't love God. You cannot love them both. You have to make a choice. Smyrna, the church we looked at last week, we saw that Satan had a syn synagogue. There was a, a synagogue of Satan there. And as sin always progresses, as leaven continues to corrupt. Now Pergamos is the throne of Satan, his base of operation, you might say. So that's the assembly. Now the author, the author, we read there in verse 12, uh, where it says that he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Uh, Isaiah gave the prophecy in Isaiah 49, 2. He said, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. Uh, you know, the sword, we know uh, from Scripture, Hebrews 4, 12 is a great Scripture that, that teaches us how that uh, this sword is the Word of God. That's what it's speaking about here, the Word of God. And uh, it is an instrument of war. Now, never forget that. It's an instrument of war. We read that in Ephesians, and also in, in Revelation here, and also in chapter 9. Uh, real believers know that the Bible possesses uh, the sword-like qualities. You know, when you're out witnessing, you, you use the Word of God for your witness. And if a person is expounding false doctrine... Uh, it is a sword of attack, as a sword that that is a offense, uh, offense, and and then, uh, or excuse me, defense. And then, when you're trying to prove a biblical point, it's a it's a sword of offense. You're you're sending it forth, but it's like a sword. It cuts two ways, uh, both both uh, as it says here. A two-edged sword. Now, um, you know, in in Matthew chapter four, uh, we read where Christ was tempted uh, after his baptism. Immediately, he was taken away into the wilderness. You remember for forty days, forty nights, and he was tempted of Satan. That's when Satan offered him all these things. And uh, if he just would worship him. And uh, each time he was tempted, there was three 
specific temptations, and each time he refuted that temptation with the Word of God. He quotes from the book of Deuteronomy on each time, but, but the thing is, he uses the Word of God. That's what we need to use. You know, uh, arguing religion will not get you anywhere. But if you give them the Scriptures, the Scriptures like a sword, it's able to cut and divide asunder. And, and when you're faithful to witnessing with the Word of God, uh, then you're setting forth the Word of God. And uh, we need to be uh, fervently uh, using the Word of God, both defensively and offensively, uh, as we witness for him. So that's how he identifies himself, as the one who hath the sharp sword with two edges. That answers all the questions. That's, that's the answer to all the problems, the Word of God. Then we have the approval of this uh, group. He said, Thou holdest fast my name. Notice there in verse number 13, uh, where Satan's seed in, and thou holdest fast my name. Notice it's my name, not your name. Uh, people sometimes go out and, and say, uh, they want to they fight church against church, you know. That's not what we're to do. We present the Word of God. We present Christ. We speak in His name. And it's by His name, by the way, uh, that we're saved. We know that. In uh, Acts chapter 4, uh, we find that to be true. Uh, and and uh, we find that they might have... As, getting along my thoughts are juggled up I had some work done on my head and didn't do much good but they're still trying I had to have some cancers removed and and so my my thoughts aren't as good tonight as I'd like them to be you just bear with me Uh, we'll we'll stick with the notes maybe it'll come out all right. But his approval that they were holding to his name and uh, by not making a a spectacle of themselves or identifying themselves publicly uh, in a personal way, they would put forth Christ. But they held fast his name and Christ appreciated their stand. There's always been a faithful few. we're at the beginning of these churches. This is just the third one. But throughout church history, I, one of the college classes I taught was church history, and I, I so much enjoyed it. In fact, I used as a guideline uh, Fox's Book of Martyr. We used to have some back here. It's a, sometimes it's a little pamphlet. It's a bigger book, but you can get it in a little pamphlet form. But it has a, a little map that extends, and you pull out, and uh, that's a good little tool for you to have. Maybe the church could get some more of those. They had some here, I know, at one time, 
and uh, I, I, in the church history class, I had one wall, it must have been about 12 foot long or 15 foot long, and a lady in the church would, had some artistic ability, and she uh, took that and drew it uh, in a large 9 by 12 or 15, whatever, uh, poster-like uh, on the wall. And I would show that and show that trail of blood, that little line of blood with all these isms and schisms and false teachings and false churches. And we're going to see the seeds set in this church for the, the largest false church that's ever been uh, in this world. And of course, I'm talking about the Roman Catholic Church uh, in this case. It's holding to the firm conviction here. These people were, when, when, he, when they were faithful to his name, it wasn't just uh, being a member of a Bible study class or wearing a piece of jewelry on your neck or a cross or something of that effect. Uh, it was more than that. Uh, these Christians were holding to the firm conviction of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you ought to write that down. The Lord Jesus Christ. Because uh, a lot of times we, we talk about Jesus and we talk about the Messiah uh, and we talk about he's our master. But his title is the Lord Jesus Christ. The definite article, the, is there because he is the only one. The Lord, of course, it means master. And he's our master. The Lord, our master. Jesus is the meditator, the savior. The name Jesus means savior. So he's our savior. And of course, Christ is the Messiah, the anointed one. When Isaiah said a child was born, that's Jesus. And a son was given, that's Christ. See, Jesus speaks of his humanity, but Christ is his deity. Never end, never ending, no beginning, nor ending. Um, they were rich uh, in, in, in their stand for Christ, and they were willingly standing. And, has, and he said, and has not denied my faith, uh, in verse 13, uh, not your faith or my faith, it's a faith that Jude talked about, once delivered to the saints. Even in those days where in Antipas, was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Uh, faithfulness to his name. And not merely have an intellectual accent saying, oh, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus. No, they had him as their Lord and Savior. Uh, Antipas mentioned here uh, was a faithful martyr that's all we know about him. 
Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us anything more. There are some who speculate that perhaps he was uh, the, uh, at one time the pastor of this church here at Pergamos. That's, that's hearsay. That's not scripture. The scripture doesn't tell us. I'll tell you what that tells me. This Antipas is like many of us. We're not renowned. This world doesn't even know we're around. But one day, to hear Christ say, Well done, thy good and faithful servant. But just like Antipas was not forgotten of the Lord, the world didn't know about him. They forgot all about him. But Jesus hasn't forgotten. And he doesn't forget us. It's so so powerful to see uh, little lessons like that that we can get uh, from this passage. And uh, they would stand firm. You know, in the 1 Corinthians 4.12, it says it is required of a steward to be faithful, to be found faithful. These folks were faithful. Now, not all of them, as you look at that trail of blood, uh, blood that B.H. Carroll put out in illustration, uh, that's just a small amount of what happened throughout history. But it did happen. Then he now comes to the admonition of this group. And verses 14 and 15, he said, I have a few things against thee because thou hast uh, there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now, you need to notice that the ones he's speaking to did not hold it, but there were people in the assembly that were holding to this false teaching and uh, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. There's two heirs that are mentioned here. First, Baalism. They say, well, what's that? Well, it speaks about the doctrine of Balaam, uh, uh, who taught Balak. Balak was the the king uh, of Moab, and and he... uh, uh, he saw the Israelites about to cross over into the Jordan, and he he feared them, and so he got a hold of the, the prophet of God, uh, who is Balaam. Balaam, who had the word of God in his mouth, but in his heart was satanic powers that caused him to covet the things of the world, the money and the power and the prestige that comes, he liked that more than he did God. And so if you read the story, you can, uh, it's in four chapters. It's a very important story because God gives us four chapters to record it. And uh, we find it here, I got the reference here somewhere, in Numbers chapters 22 through 25. Numbers chapter 22 through 25. Uh, We have the Uh, teaching of Balaam. And I'll just paraphrase it for time. We'll not read all those verses. Uh, You could do that at home, and you should, uh, to give you a good background. But what happened was 
Balak wanted Balaam to curse the people of God and that they would lose their favor with God and wouldn't have the power of God in their life. And so he offered him some money, probably a good sum of money. I mean, he was a king. And so he offered him some money and and, uh, he tried three times to curse Israel, but God wouldn't let him do it. He couldn't do it. He wanted to, but he couldn't do it. And then he used this method that Satan has used down through the ages. Starting with Cain taking his brother's life. With murder, he could not stop the plan of God because Seth was born and the plan went on. But Satan put into the heart of Balaam to to compromise the people. To get the people to to uh, fellowship and patronize and and cohabit with these heathen girls of another nation. And they would get together and of course what happens, they begin to go to dinners where they were eating food offered to idols and that was just the mild part. Uh, But it got worse and worse and they had children and first thing you knew, it was like old Jezebel, uh, Ahab's wife who brought Baalism into uh, Israel and it spread like wildfire and they lost the blessings of God because of compromise. Now not everybody in this church was responsible for that but there were some in this church and uh, Balaam again, he had the word of God in his mouth. He was a prophet of God, but he possessed these satanic desires. And uh, i got to move this here along a little bit. I hope I turned it right. So we, we see here, uh, he follows Satan's old line. Uh, Dr. Uh, Donald... A great Barnhouse, uh, a great Bible teacher, and, and Barnes notes on the New Testament. He's he's a, he's a quite accomplished uh, teacher. He says that this word Pergamus has in it the same root from which we get the English words bigamy and polygamy, because it means it has to do with the corrupt marriage. And this is the most corrupt marriage of any marriage. Here we have the the church marrying the world. That's what happens here. And by the way, here's a test for you to take. Here's what the Lord said in John 15, 18, and 19. The Lord said, if the world hate you, you know that it hated Christ before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would have his uh, would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Now the test is for you to ask, how am I doing with the world? 
Some folks never have any trouble with the devil because they're walking the same path. If you're walking for Christ, that's against the devil. You're going to bump heads. You're living in this world. I'll guarantee you, you're going to have a hard time keeping a testimony and keeping faithful and you're going to be fighting battles every day. That's one of the tests we can note if we're truly children of God. In John chapter 17, we have a a passage called the High Priestly Prayer of Christ. Beautiful chapter. He says there in verses 14 through 16, he says, I have given them thy word, speaking to God the Father, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. You can't be popular in this world, my friend, and be popular with Christ. The church that is popular with the world is not a spiritually strong, separated church. You can mark it down. If, if your church, everybody's speaking well of them. As a preacher, I often said, I hope that people all don't speak well of me. Because I've compromised somewhere if I have. Because whether it be a preacher, an evangelist, or a church, if you're popular with the world, something's wrong with your walk. Now, it's our nature to want to be. (laughs) We all want to be liked. That's one of the sins of the flesh. Um, After the death, in the study of the history of the church, after the uh, death of Diocletian, uh, the monarch of the Roman Empire, there were two men who contested uh, for his position. The one in the west was Constantine, and the one in the east was Maxentus. Oh, and, and this is now just tradition. It's not out of the Bible. But tradition tells us that this Constantine saw a vision. You've heard of it. They didn't read it in the Bible. It comes from tradition. Remember, uh, it may be some truth to it. Maybe not. That's a good story, so I'm going to tell it to you. And the story goes like this. He had a vision at night of a cross in the sky. And under that cross, written in uh, the Latin, uh, which is the language of Rome, uh, was uh, the English meaning, by this sign conquer." I believe this was a devil-induced dream if he had one like this or vision like this. I don't think this comes from God. The devil likes to use things. You know, he quotes the Bible. He quoted the Bible to the Lord when he tested it. And it's nothing for the devil to quote the Bible. And just because there's a, a cross, which is a symbol of Christianity, and, and a positive statement by this sign, conquer, uh, you know, uh, nothing wrong with that. And so 
we say, well, this must be true. Well, this is of the devil. Uh, that night, Constantine made a bargain with Satan in, in any respect. And his, his, his uh, bargain was this. Told the devil, he says, devil, if you'll give me the victory, I'll join the church. And I'll become a Christian. If I can win this battle, they're fighting over the, the control of Rome now. And so he, he asked uh, the devil to give him this, this victory. Well, we know from history that he did win the battle. And we know that uh, he declared himself to be a Christian. And I say declared himself. There's no proof that he ever was a Christian. Uh, in fact, the matter is, he, they say that he was not baptized until his, right before his death because he didn't want to uh, be a Christian too soon. He'd have to give up too much good stuff. See, that's his way of thinking. That's the that's devil way of thinking. That's not God's way. Today is the day of salvation. Don't you boast about tomorrow. And so, in any case... He, he makes this deal. And we know that the, from history that he won. And so now Christianity becomes popular. Up to this time, you remember the persecution? And even at the beginning of this, this period here, there was persecution. But it went away when Constantine became a Christian and he made Christianity the state religion. Boy, did that change things. Instead of meeting in the catacombs and, and fearing for your life day after day and losing all that you have for your testimony for Christ, many lost their life. People, John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul, James, many had their heads cut off during this earlier time with this persecution. But now that persecution is going to stop. You ever wonder those old churches that the Catholics claim were theirs? How that come just like that from the catacombs to these great big cathedrals? You know who built those cathedrals? Those were the heathen temples. Constantine took those and gave them to the Christians. Now the Christians have another problem. Christian faith was very simple. They, they met, they prayed, they worshiped God, they taught the scriptures, they departed with a song to meet again. And they had to do it secretly. But now they have these massive buildings, have all this money. Well, they got to do something. I mean, you just can't have a great big building like that and just go in and have a word of prayer and leave. Huh? So they begin all these activities, all that pagan stuff. You know where most of the ritualism and so forth of the Catholic Church comes from? Heathenism, but back at 2000 B.C. There's a book written, Two Babylons. It's, it's been reprinted in recent years. It's not too hard to get a copy of. 
I had a copy of the original printings, not the original issue, the first issue, but one of the old ones of one single volume. But I gave it away with my library when I uh, moved. And, uh, but two Babylons, ancient Babylon, the heathen practices, that a Madonna and child, where do you think you get that? You don't get that from the Bible. You get that from 2000 B.C. Uh, the, the nunnery, all the holy waters and all that stuff. Where does that come from? That doesn't come from the Bible. But see, they had to put on a pretty good show. If you're going to be the state church, you, you're going to have these dignitaries. Now, now let's look at who, who these people are in this church. One of the first acts that Constantine did, back a couple hundred years before this, during the second, Corinthian, second century, baptismal regeneration was one of the earliest heresies that began to be taught. And these people believed that. That's why he wasn't going to be baptized until he's about dead. But what he did do he marched legions of his army through that water that flowed under that bridge where he fought the battle. Down one bank and across the pond and up the other side, he went in a heathen, now you're a Christian. That's what they claim. Can you imagine this great growth in the church was mostly from heathenism. So they adopted all these heathen practices and customized them. You go to Mexico, you have the, uh, the thing for the dead. The worship of the dead. You go to Haiti, you have a voodoo mass. They adapt. You go see the gathering of the cardinals, they all look a little bit different because they believe this over here and this over here. They're not the universal church that they claim to be. But through the years, that's what happened. And that's what made such a, a terrible thing against the church. Now, see how my time is going. Yeah, I've got I to gotta just leave my notes and, and go the other way. So here, here's, here's what's happening. This, this thing is compromised. It's no longer the church. These were the literal seeds of Romanism. The Roman Catholic Church didn't start here. But the seeds that started this church began here. The Nicolaitans, we touched on that before. And I said that, you know, it's a, a, a combination of two words, meaning a ruling of the people, the laity. Boy, did that flourish under this. You don't have this big organization, this church, and all this money coming in. I mean, now you can't just have pastors. You have to have bishops and cardinals and archbishops and this and that and, and later popes. So they keep adding, 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 growing, growing, growing. It's not in the Bible. In fact, the matter is, that's why they, the Catholics forbid you to have the Bible. For hundreds and hundreds of years, you have to read sometime the Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition uh, will make your hair turn white. The way those people were treated because they wanted the Bible 
in their own language. And, and uh, the Nicolaitans take effect. This clergy and laity. They got it to go on to where now, you know, you get your sins confessed, not by going to, to Christ as we are priests. No, you're not a priest. You, you're a sinner. You get a, a possibility of heaven, but no promise of salvation in the Catholic Church. A possibility. And then only if you belong to the Catholic Church. If you get excommunicated, ooh, no chance. That's why they feared it so. So here you have these teachings that are not found anywhere in Scripture. They're contrary to Scripture. And, and why is that that it's in there? Because of these false teachers, because the devil now is in the church and things are changed. Instead of the Bible being the rule of faith and practice, it's church dogma. And church dogma keeps growing and growing and growing and gets more and more complicated and less and less biblical as it goes. The Bible is such an easy book to read and understand. But you listen to all that stuff, you have to go to a priest to have your sins confessed. You don't find that. That's, that's invented by the Catholic Church. That's their, um, uh, what do you call it, secret agents. <laughs> that's where they get the info in the community. That's how they know what's going on. So they can turn the cranks. They needed money, so they invented purgatory. I mean, how much money would you get to pray for somebody to get them out of purgatory? The Bible doesn't have anything about purgatory. This all began here. It would be not recognized as the Catholic Church until about another three, about uh, 600 the next church, uh, the next study we see, we'll see it, where you have the first pope, 600. They say Peter was the first pope. Where did they get that? Well, from their dogma, from their teachings. If anybody would have been a pope, it would have been Paul. Common sense tells you that. Peter and the apostles were sent out to the lost sheep of Israel. Paul was sent out to the world. What a, what a, what a, a story to tell in, in the scriptures and so clear if someone would just take time to study it and read it. The Nicolaitans begin to add on all these laws. Now, you know, some of it, and later we'll study the, the, the Luther and the, called the Reformation period. Now, it might hurt some of your feelings, but let me, let me say it is true, and you can talk to me later if you like. I can't hear too good, so it doesn't do any good to talk out there. I won't know what you're saying. <laughs> that's, that's a blessing of not having good hearing, you know what I mean? <laughs> I always tell my wife I already hear too much. I don't want to hear half of what I hear. But, but, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a shame when people 
think about the stuff they add and add and add, and it's not in the scriptures. The Nicolaitans were that thing, the, the, having it over the laity. And that type of a church, you have nothing. I was about to say, and I got chasing out rabbit, but here it is. Methodism. Methodism is a, one of the Protestant. Uh, it's not really a Protestant church because it never started as a church. It was a prayer group within the Church of England, the Episcopal Church today in this country, the Church of England. But the Methodists, if you're a Methodist, you, you learn to respect the guy that had the office of a bishop because he's the one that sent your pastor to you. And if you weren't in his graces, he'd send you one that you would really wish he had. And, and uh, so he had great authority. And when he comes in, people spreads out of the way. They talk about the riches, these, these popes, and, and, and before that, the cardinals and the other lower offices, they begin to have the robes and the, and the, and the uh, fashionable dress, the jewelry. You go down into some of these countries where people are literally starving to death, and they have churches that has wealth in it beyond estimation. It's hard to figure how much you're worth. And before you get too much down on the wealth of the Catholics, we have a lot of neighbors around here that, that will contend with the Catholics today for money. They're called Mormons. <laughs> you don't think Mormons are rich? You need to listen to what the news are. They had them on 2020 here the other day is where I heard it. They're in trouble with the government over laws and taxes and so forth. They have a bank account of $100 billion that they keep, might, be, might call it a, a nest egg or reserve account. And the government's getting them because they keep putting money in. Not doing, the Mormons are very strict like the Seventh-day Adventists, another cult, uh, to, to, to tithe. They're very faithful, and they have billions of dollars coming in. And some of those billions, they said about 10 or so, is set back each year, and it is fun, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the and the use of that money uh, is, is it's just something you need to look at. If you have a neighbor or a family member or a friend that's getting caught up into that cult. Uh, now, that's getting away from this, but it, this is what that led to. The, the cults didn't start until we had religious freedom. About the 1800s. That's when all these Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventists, Christian science, all that stuff started right in that period of time. And uh, the Catholic Church would have never allowed those things. The Catholic Church wouldn't allow our forefathers. We have forefathers by some strange names. Pollicans, 
Many people don't know what a polygon is. They think it's a pelican. No, it's not a pelican. It's a polygon. Uh, they were a, a group of Christians for one of the oldest and longest running. They're, they they existed for a thousand years or more. Very strong polygons. Uh, they they held close to the teachings of Paul. And not that they didn't accept the other parts of the Bible, but they just looked at Paul's writings as more precious and more uh, instructional and so forth. Uh, next week, we'll see this advancing to that first pope. And then, with all their enlightenment and all their wisdom, then you have a period of a thousand years that you know in secular history as the Dark Ages. That's a good name for it because that darkness characterizes ignorance. And these, this was about as ignorant a bunch of people to be religious as all get out. Uh, I mean, persecuting Christians for having the Bible I mean, what kind of a Christian religion is that? God commanded us uh, to teach it. We talked right here about him having the sword, a two-edged sword. That's the word of God. That's our, that's our uh, source of strength and instruction. And to disallow it, you say, well, well my... Uh, I know people have a priest that has their Bible study with them here in America. That's not the same in all countries. In all countries, some countries today, Catholicism still suppresses the people having the Bible. They'll, and if you have one, they'll tell you, we'll tell you what that means. You come to the priest, he'll tell you what that means. I've, I've met some priests that have gotten saved and they will themselves admit that they knew about next to nothing. In fact, many of them were won to Christ because of the witness of some farmer who's a Christian, had little or no education, but he knew the Bible. And he expounded the Bible to him in such a way that he couldn't refute it. And the Word of God being sharp, got a hold of that old priest's heart, and he got saved. That's why they don't want him to have it. Father, help us as we continue this study. Help us, Lord, to have our minds clear in the things we prepare. And Lord, I know that uh, there's so much that could have been said and it was not said, and I ask your forgiveness, Lord, for my weakness and not being able to utter the things that need to be spoken. But Lord, I pray that Thy Holy Spirit, through this lesson tonight, even as poorly as it may have been given, Lord, I pray that You'll use it to speak to the hearts of those that are here and put a, a desire in their hearts uh, to draw near to You and be faithful and, and, and steadfast in their stand for You and stand against the, the false teachings that are around them. We pray this in 